What's up, everybody? It's your boy here with episode 82 of the Pinovola podcast. We'll be finishing the Dogs of War series. This is just going to be a pretty short cap of what his legacy was. Uh, Sue and I am talking about in uh, the Mongol Empire and later in modern warfare. Um, he was an interesting character when it comes to his legacy because nobody, in effect, even Genghis Khan had a more important role in shaping the Mongol Empire. Uh, he was the supreme commander eventually. No one was higher than him. And he served under Genghis and his replacements, Kublai and I don't remember the other one. Uh, it's, mar- it's mentioned here that Ogadai and Gyuk. Uh, the problem with Mongol names is that everyone in the Mongol Empire seem to have like 30 names, so you can't really nail anyone down at any point in time, especially between multiple sources, so it's kind of a challenge here. Um, He was also pretty critical to the national development. I mean, at this point in time, uh, post-Crusade, First Crusade, you could still count it as the medieval era, I think. And... A lot of national development was from conquering. It's not like today where national development is, oh, well, you know, we're going to take this city and we're going to rebuild it and we're going to do all this stuff to it. It was, well, let's expand as far as we can so we can spread our ideals to whoever else wants to listen to us. And if they don't listen to us, they're going to because we will kill them. Um, he, He was effectively... One of he is one of the most respected generals out there, and you know there's a statue in uh, Mongolia's capital, I believe, to Subadai. the The problem is when you're ranking individuals who, you know, marked history. The issue is how how do you do that, right? If you're talking about, for example, um, n- not Nikola Tesla. Uh, what's his name? Edison. F- Thomas Edison? Yeah, he created the phone. How big of an impact did he have compared to, say, Julius Caesar, right? Like, sure. Thomas Edison did create the phone, and that revolutionized communication. But at the same time, you have an individual who effectively brought together almost all of the European continent and beyond that. Uh, these people are both important, but like, how do you rank them, right? Can you rank them? Is it even possible? I mean, we do, but it, it's almost kind of like a a zero-sum game there, you know what I'm saying? And he, he got lost in history. It wasn't until six or seven hundred years after the events of the Mongol Empire that we really found out about him. Um... It's kind of crazy, especially when you think that he steamrolled massive armies at the time, like Constantinople, one of the most researched countries or empires in history, and he beat them to a pulp. They didn't even stand a chance against him because they weren't ready for that type of the warfare that he was he was using. I mean, I mentioned it earlier in the shows. He was using tactics that didn't show up for another 700 years. 
just, uh, I don't think people understand. Like, think if you were sitting at home and some dude just teleported into your living room and slapped you and teleported away. What would you do about that? What? You couldn't do anything. Because you can't find him anymore. You don't know where he's at. He's gone. He's a ghost. He's in the wind. It's like a Tom Cruise movie. Uh, That's what he was doing. (laughs) And to think that he got lost, even with how important he was, that makes you think, right? If someone so influential could get lost to history, what else are we missing? Like, are we, there could have just been some dude who's rolling around with like plasma weaponry and he had all the the technology out there. He came from outer space, whatever. It could be some dude like that who was just rolling around. He wasn't even like an aggressive dude. He was just chilling, kind of giving people the keys to agriculture. He was like, yeah, you should really stop chasing animals, you know. You're not going to build up into a big society if you continue to hunt and gather. You should probably take these plants here, you see, and then, you know, these plants have seeds, and then these seeds kind of grow, so you should harvest those plants and continue to build your culture around these plants. And people are like, whoa, that's fucking insane, dog. I've never thought of that. I mean, that's not how agriculture started, I don't think. But that could have been possible, and we just don't realize it, you know what I mean? And... There, there's a mention here, I talked about it in this source, that the way that he, he fought, I'm going to just describe like the tactic. It's not anything super, super crazy in the fact that like, it's not whatever, think of the most insane tactic you can think of, like kamikaze attacks, whatever. His contribution was just that he attacked from multiple angles. And people didn't do that. Like, battles in the medieval era were like, hey, we're going to line up in a field. We're going to stab each other until someone decides, let's not do this anymore and run away. That's a medieval battle. I mean, that's the progress of that is the appearance, the first clash, the rout. Most people died in the route. It was like 33%. And then they're like, ah, got you, bitch. You can't fuck around with us anymore. And then you lose. Or there were... The thing that I, I... I think we should do it now is... It's, it's called a trial by combat. And effectively, two parties let's say nation A and nation B would show up and they'd be like, yo, I want your land. This is the deal. We will invade you or we can have a trial by combat. And a trial by combat effect is just you and one other dude who are representatives of your nation fighting and whoever wins that duel wins the battle. I think we should do that now. Because it would be way less of an impact on human life lost due to war. And it's a big ask, but I think we should. Now, there's other characters. Oh, Jesus Christ. Like Napoleon. And this is the second... Oh, I got hair in my mouth. This is the second guy who used the multi-axis principle in war. So you kind of start to see these incredible people who 
revolutionize something, but we don't really take it to heart until way later. Um, there's a military theorist who went by the name of B.H. Little Hart, Liddell Hart. And this book is called Great Captains Unveiled. And this is where we first learned about Subadai. So I have a fan in here and it's blowing hair in my face. And I I don't like it, but I don't want to turn the fan off because it's hot. Um, he basically brought Subadai into the modern world. And he was talking about an analysis of his tactics. And he was, he was saying that uh, Genghis Khan and Subadai demonstrated how mechanized armies should work. Uh, mechanized army basically is anything that isn't totally on foot. So like a mechanized army in this period would be artillery uh, carriages and horses. Today it's tanks and armored personnel carriers and trucks and all that stuff, but you know. Um, Little Heart didn't get much support. It wasn't a very popular book. I mean, it kind of took off in Germany, but he wrote it around the time of World War II, so there wasn't too much uh, interest in literature at the time, mostly because everyone was dying and books were being burned. You know, just day-to-day stuff. Um... The interesting thing about Subodai is that most of what we know about him comes from Russian study of the Mongols and the fact that they were trying to understand what and how the Mongols used and were able to conquer vast swaths of Russia because no one else had did it. No one else had done it. And you have to consider that if someone can do it with horses and, you know, bows and swords, it could be done again with better equipment. So they had to go and and understand, they had to go and study like, well, how do they do this? Why did they do it this way? And how can we defend against it? That's, that's a big thing in strategy is if someone can do it in 1250 with low, low-end technology, someone could replicate that strategy much later with much better technology and probably do even better than the people who did it before them because the destructive capabilities of what they're using are exponentially higher. Like, if someone came in, like, this is the classic argument, right? How long could a dude with the machine gun last against knights? If you gave the dude unlimited ammo and you put up a horde of knights, how long could that dude last? What, 20 minutes? A day? Two days? Could he last forever? If you had a team of two guys who just switched off, they're like, you know, I'm going to take a nap. You just keep shooting those knights. How long could they How long could they go for? That's like, that's one of the, the arguments that you got to make. I'm going to check the time here real quick. Okay, we're 11 minutes. This podcast is probably going to be short because the legacy legacy of this character is kind of, you know, it only really relates to warfare and military history. So the 
result of what the Russians came up with was something called the Deep Battle Doctrine. That sounds pretty cool. I don't know about you, but I like that. And it was developed by a marshal named Mikhail Tukhachevsky. There was another guy who helped. His name was Mikhail Fruntz. And there was a third guy who's not totally credited, but his name is G.S. Iserson. Now, Deep Battle is super similar to Mongol strategy. What they did is they took out the horses and they put in tanks. And let that sit in for a second. Uh, I don't know about you, but I would have a hard time dealing with a thousand horses heading my way. I would be much more concerned if 150 tanks were headed my way. On top of that, there was... um, trucks that were carrying troops so the idea of deep battle was to push one front super hard to the point that your enemy is about to collapse and then you would rush in (coughs) from another angle with the pro actually i don't know how they set it up but i know the basics of it is they would use the armor to be a spearhead as far as I know and they would use the motorized troops to be a cleanup crew as far as I know as far as I know uh, I'm going to open up this deep battle link here and read it real quick um okay I don't care about the geopolitical shit uh so there were two phases one called tactical deep battle and then when that succeeded they had something called deep battle operations this was effectively breaking the enemy's defenses so if they had a trench you break that line and then you go through it and you establish a beachhead somewhere and then you operate from within there so they would have the tanks go in and they would have them crush the front, and then they would send the troops in to secure that, and they would probably leapfrog back and forth until they got to where they were going. So you can see, right, the show is about history to a lot of degrees. What is done in the past can be adapted to the future and can be incredibly successful. The Russian armor in World War II was one of the pivotal pieces of that whole puzzle like if people have a misconception that the united states won the war but really it was russia if you didn't have russia on the allied forces or even participating in the war during world war ii there would have been no pressure from the east to entrap germany and break them that that's what really did it in for them is one, overextension, two, an oil crisis, and three, the fact that they were fighting a war on two fronts. Even three if you count the African campaign. So from the West, you had to deal with America, England, uh, French Revolution, or not French Revolution, the French Resistance, whoever else. The Allies had like 20 countries. And from the East, you had to deal with the massed might of the Soviet Union, which is churning out tanks at an incredible rate. They had more manpower than any other country could provide, and they were willing to spend it. Russia's casualties in World War II alone are like 20 times higher than every other allied country combined. 
China is like a close second because there was some other war going on there between China and itself. Um, and then you have the, the African campaign. So you have to consider, right? Think about it like this. In 12, whatever, the 1200s, Subodai came up with essentially deep battle strategy. And then 700 years later, or however, however far it is, 1940 minus 1200, it's like 500 years. Uh, that's 1939 minus 1200. Okay, 739 years later, Russians used that to shatter the Nazis. To help shatter the Nazis. I mean, they did a, a ton of the heavy lifting. So you have to think, what can we apply today? What do we have, right? Think about something in your life. How can it be improved by a lesson you can learn in history? Here's something I'm going to leave you guys with before I end this podcast. If you guys want to learn how to live a better life, you have to go and look at individuals like, for example, Marcus Aurelius. One of the best philosophical books of all time is called Meditations. The audiobook is probably the way to go if you, you're busy. I mean, I listen to the audiobook. It's about five hours long. But it's essentially a bunch of short concepts that you can live your life by. I mean, one of the best things in there, uh, it's about wrestling because the Romans love to wrestle. And you're saying if you're wrestling a man who is dirty, who doesn't cut his nails, who fights dirty, it's not in your interest to strike back against him in a way that doesn't prove that your efforts are better than his. If you just stopped the match and you hit him or you stabbed him because he doesn't take care of what he needs to do to participate in the sport, that doesn't solve the problem. That doesn't prove that what you are, your level of athleticism and the way you lead your life is better than him. What it proves is that you snapped and you stabbed him or you hit him. What you need to do is prove to him no matter what, no matter if he fights dirty or if he's all that, that your technique and your ability to carry yourself in that sport or whatever the, the application is, is better than him breaking the rules and generally being a dick. That's just one of the things in there. And it's a five hour long book, so you would be able to get through that and you could learn all kinds of stuff. Remember, the message of the show, I posted something up about... Uh, a poll on my personal Instagram to people who I know. And it was saying that, you know, I'm going to gauging interest for shirts on the podcast just to see people I know if they wanted any. You know, some people put no, some people put yes. And I put out the next day, like anyone who responded yes, I'm going to send you guys a free shirt because realistically, it's not about the profit right now. I want to give people an, an audience or a way to find resources, right? And, you know, that led me to the other thing. I was listening to Joe Rogan's podcast the other day, and it was the Neil deGrasse Tyson one, and he talked about finding a grant uh, to help fund his show to get it off the ground. And that's actually what I'm going to be doing now. Uh, I'm going to be applying for journalism and arts grants to help find uh, money to, one, retrofit the show exactly as I want it to be done, which is three to four microphone setup, 
uh, video, all that stuff. And two, to get an audit, get my website, all that stuff set up, infrastructure, and then get an advertising budget because I need that. And that's what I think is going to be the, the step in taking us and this show to the next level. Now, I will be closing this podcast. I will see you guys next month. Uh, I'm going to be recording with Sam tomorrow, I believe. Remember, I'm doing, I'm caught it when I was editing it last week, six episodes a month just to give myself turnaround time to get better content for you guys. I will see you two weeks from now on Tuesday. Catch you then. Through the bells of the cathedral